Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of our guests and do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. My name is Deanna Zanatos, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Norton Children's Hospital, the University of Louisville. Today, I am joined by my co-host, Sadie Rodriguez. Hi, Deanna. My name is Sadie Rodriguez. I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University. Today, we will be speaking with our guests, Dr. Ross Ungerleiter and Dr. Jamie Ungerleiter, about coaching and team building for multidisciplinary teams. Ross and Jamie, I will let you both introduce yourselves. Just tell us a little bit about the work you do. I presently am doing coaching and consulting with physicians and physician teams. And considering COVID kind of um, put a kink in things, and before that, I had a clinical practice. But for now, the focus is healthcare organizations, the teams, and the physicians um, and nurses who work in them. I'm a, a pediatric cardiac surgeon. I've been practicing for around 35, 36 years. Uh, I came on the faculty at Duke in 1986 and uh, began their pediatric cardiac surgery program and then had some stints as leadership stints at other organizations, Oregon Health Science, uh, Rainbow Babies and Children's Wake Forest, uh, and then uh, Driscoll Children's. I got interested in the teamwork as a cardiac surgeon, recognizing just how difficult the environment could be, especially for all of us who had the same hope in mind. And I distinctly remember a day in 1996 when I was a professor at Duke by then, and uh, I uh, walked into uh, our ICU and uh, confronted uh, a couple of our intensivists who were having an argument with each other and finger pointing and uh, in front of the nurse, and it was pretty awful, especially since the patient was sick because I hadn't done a very good operation. So they were really committed to trying to help the patient get better, but we were all in that together. And I remember thinking how awful it felt to walk into that energy. And what was it that was happening in our field? That we had so many extremely committed, dedicated, well-trained people who somehow couldn't dialogue well enough to be able to prevent some of these awful conflicts from occurring. And so that was over 20 years ago, 25 years ago now, and I went on a, uh, a quest to try to understand, and that re- in- included getting a lot of coaches. I've had some wonderful coaches and trainers, reading a lot, and then on my own journey, which included uh, during that time getting an MBA, where I really got interested in leadership and visioning and strategy and organizational health. And then eventually, uh, through a lot of the work that I was doing, getting my own uh, certification as a coach. And as I've gone now through a full career, although I really love pediatric cardiac (laughs) surgery, I'm finding that there's really a need for helping to teach people some of the human factor skills that go into communicating, go into really learning how to manage oneself be aware of what's happening within oneself and to be able to manage uh, those emotions, to be able to attune to what's happening with others, not in a judgmental way, but in a curious, 
way of just being open to what's happening with them and exploring to try to understand uh, so that they can learn how to have relationships where they can manage each other, uh, emotions and uh, whatever's happening, and then the context that we're in, trying to understand what's happening with this uh, incredible context that we find ourselves in, taking care of what has become an increasingly sicker, more complex patient population that requires even more resources. And then on top of that, and we have to say it because it's out there, is all of the external pressure from the STS congenital heart surgery database and institutions worrying about whether or not they will meet the bar. And if they aren't, will they be in the newspaper? And we've seen a lot of that. And so we see a lot of pressure in pediatric cardiac teams, and it often gets played out in the ICU because that's where a lot of the care is being delivered at high stakes and with a lot of unpredictable things happening. So I'm a pediatric heart surgeon who's got interested in human factors. And Jamie, as she said, has been interested in helping with human factors for over 40 years. Yeah, I probably should add, um, I have a master's in counseling and MSW and a PhD in educational psychology. And really for the past 20 years is either an educator or counselor coach for physicians and physicians in training. I always love talking to you both, and I think you both have so much insight because of your backgrounds and your experience that led you to to this point to be able to work with these teams. But just to just to help orient our listeners, for those who may not be familiar with coaching or ways to improve multidisciplinary teamwork, can you tell us a little bit about what that means, especially as it relates to sort of Heart Institute teams, because they are so multidisciplinary? Coaching does not mean that you can just be successful, but you maybe could be by just mentoring someone and offering opinions. There are a lot of things that people who become coaches do in their training so that they can help those who are their clients. One of the most important tenets of that is to have unconditional positive regard for the people that we're, we're, we're coaching. Yeah. It's uh, probably the, one of the first things that I really had to understand when I was being trained as a coach is that one of my first roles or goals was to find something about each client that I was fond of and that I could highly regard so that I could create a bond with them. I can't always do that. Yeah, There have been times when I've just been unable to be an effective coach for someone and I've been able to try to help guide them to somebody else. One of the things that I've learned from Jamie and that's Dan Siegel's work is that all of us want to be truly seen and heard and understood and valued so that we can feel safe and secure. And I think our role as coaches is to try to understand the system and then to try to understand that system from the perspectives of all the people who are in the system, what's motivating them and what's challenging them. And then to try to put together some opportunities for people to try to solve the problems. So we're really just trying to, as Virginia Satir used to say, walk a half step behind and shine a light on their path. I think what I would say is in coaching, we don't do so much family of origin work and go back and look at history as much as staying present moment focused. When I think about coaching, I think there are the coaches that 
people choose or hire to work with them individually. And in that case, then really as their coach, my focus is totally really on them and helping them figure out what's in their loving best interest and how they can be most effective with the people they work with. On the other hand, if you're coaching a team or a system, the client really is not one individual. It's the team or the system that you're coaching. And and there's a slight difference because now it's the relationship among these people. That's your client. You know, sometimes what's best for the team is not necessarily best for one individual on the team. And so, you know, in, in many situations, it works for people to have their own individual coaches and then have a separate coach that would be the coach for the team. And it doesn't mean that you don't meet with people individually. It's just that everybody's clear that the goal is high performance for the team, not an individual. And so it's really helpful, I think, in some cases, not in all, to have both. We've worked a lot with pediatric cardiac groups. And some of the challenges are the same. They get manifested a little bit differently because people are always different. But the challenges usually come down to struggling with feeling that there needs to be perfection in a field where there can't be perfection. How do we deal with disappointment when it confronts us? We'd like to take a moment to recognize this episode's sponsor, Seattle Children's Heart Center. Seattle Children's Heart Center outcomes are among the best in the nation for simple to complex heart procedures and transplants for children. We are a leader in treating pediatric congenital heart disease with one of the country's largest programs, performing over 500 cardiac surgeries, 700 cardiac catheterizations, 800 prenatal evaluations, and an average of 16 heart transplants per year. The Pediatric Cardiac Critical Care Unit is a 24-bed medical surgical unit managed by cardiac intensivists, APPs, cardiologists, and fellows. Nurses and respiratory therapists are trained to care for our sickest cardiac patients, provide neurodevelopmental care, and participate in quality improvement initiatives. We offer advanced therapies such as ventricular assist devices, ECLS, and continuous renal replacement therapies. The Seattle Children's mission is to provide hope, care, and cures to help every child live the healthiest and most fulfilling life possible. Together, Seattle Children's Hospital Research Institute and Foundation deliver superior patient care, identify new discoveries and treatments through research, and raise funds to create better futures for all pediatric patients. Ranked as one of the top children's hospitals in the country by U.S. News & World Report, Seattle Children's serves as the Pediatric and Adolescent Academic Medical Center for Washington, Alaska, Montana, and Idaho, the largest region of any children's hospital in the country. I remember many, many years ago, I was giving a talk at a national meeting. This particular session was on uh, hypoplastic left heart syndrome, which is still one problem that challenges us. and Probably creates, you know, 80% of some of the angst that we have in our programs for just that one lesion. But um, I was giving a talk, and the, the speaker before me said, in our institution, we expect to be 100% successful with our management of of hypoplast. And I leaned over to the person next to me who was going to be speaking after me, and I said, well, um, he's going to fail. I wonder how he manages failure. And so I think one of the things that we encounter is how do our teams that we work with manage 
struggle and manage failure and the recognition that things are never going to be perfect. And so a lot of the times what we encounter are different uh, people's abilities to deal with that challenge and then how it gets manifested in the way they relate, whether it's at one extreme, you know, Jamie talks about the window of tolerance that when people are, are well resourced, they're in their windows of tolerance and they can kind of handle things. Things are going well. Well, they have flexibility and yeah. adaptability. And then a stressor comes along like a patient. Suddenly they come in on rounds and what? This happened last night? And uh, they, they get outside their window of tolerance. And what we see is one of two kinds of reactions. Either they go off the top screaming and yelling or they go off the bottom. They just collapse and they don't even want to talk about it. What we're talking about is what happens when there's an invitation that that to get dysregulated <laughs> and how do we create space between the stimuluses of our life and our responses yeah. so that we're being truly mindful and choosing and not, you know, just reactive, you know, sort of that um, sympathetic reaction or parasympathetic that Ross was talking about. And that's a great comment because if you can create a space between the stimulus, the information comes in. And so now you're aware of something. Or the activating event. And then there's that response. And when there's no space in between them, it's just a reaction. It's not a response. And to be able to put a little space in there, a pause of some kind, what's happening inside me? Why am I so upset about this? That space creates much more bandwidth and much more fidelity for people to have a conversation. And I think that's where coaching, say individual coaching, can really help because it can give people some tools for mindfulness. It, a, a coach can explore what was about that particular situation was activating because the other piece that happens, we all get activated. I mean, given the right, right circumstances, we're all going to get activated. And then the piece is, how do we do that without inviting sh- more shame? How do we do that without judging or criticizing ourselves and instead being curious with compassion, like, whoa, that really got to me. <laughs> what was that about? You know, wonder what was happening that I had that kind of immediate response. Because if we can do that, and if we can openly talk up with our colleagues, like, whoa, I don't know what happened to me when I just bit your head off or whatever, it, you know, it is. Let's take a break and let's talk about it. And we both can show up with some curiosity and compassion because I value you as a colleague and it's not this is not you know the way i want it to go so we actually in the, in the textbook that actually that we wrote many years ago the first edition was written with uh dave nichols who you all know is and dave and i uh with bill greeley uh and a few others wrote the first textbook and now the third edition is out and um in that third edition um the first chapter is really on some of these leadership techniques. We call it a whole brain leadership because a lot of organizations have become so focused on the operational aspects and the protocols and the ways that we're supposed to do things. And everywhere I go, people have different ways of doing things. If there were a right way, we'd probably have all gotten there. But I've yet to see two surgeons that operate the same way, and they all believe their way is the way it should be. And, and I know for a fact that my way is the way it should be. <laughs> and, uh, the, the, and the second piece of that whole brain leadership, though, is relational leadership. And we really haven't done a very good job of training people 
about the relational leadership component, because ultimately that's where the real success is going to come. We can make space for different ways of doing things, and organizations have their uniqueness. In fact, it's good for organizations to discover that uniqueness so that they can be the best at whatever it is that they can do, which may not be the same way that another organization does things. So how do we make ourselves unique? But that relational leadership is what helps get you there. And so it's training leaders to understand the power of that component. And when Jamie said that thing about space, you know, another way of thinking about it is it's really, it's the space between the notes that make the music. And so it's, it's really a way of teaching people uh, a technique of how do I start to make music with my organization as opposed to cacophony. Ross and I, you can tell, we really <laughs> care about relationships and you should could be a fly on the wall sometime when we're just talking ad infinitum about our own relationships. But, but I do want to just notice that not everybody that goes into healthcare is relational in their orientation. There are many people that have learned that sort of they're a score or a number or a performance, <laughs> you know, and that relationships are sort of secondary and something you kind of have to do or they don't put them, you know, sort of at the top. And so I just mentioned that because if you value relationships and you're working with somebody that that's secondary in their life, it's all about my surgical or medical performance and then and by the way I'll have a relationship with you it's it's a little bit of a setup to try to work with that person because they're not going to have the same desires or goals and if someone begins to believe that they're defined by their performance and by the grade that they get and you know we all know this right i mean it's uh, it's the, the distance between the, our head and our heart and our actions is huge because we all know that we're not defined by the last case that went spectacularly well. So we walk around thinking, God, we're good. And then the next week we have a case that goes off the rails and we think, what is wrong with it? And that's the vulnerability piece. The vulnerability piece is shame. And shame is a lot different than the, the guilt that, God, I really feel bad that that happened. Shame is, you know, I'm a bad thing and I don't want anybody to know it. And so when somebody has shame about a bad outcome, and this is Brene Brown's work, but it's very powerful, shame about that, then it, it either comes outward as blame, you know, that's your problem, it's not me, or it goes inward as depression and checking out, and now we're seeing all this burnout. And it's helping people manage the vicissitudes of the experiences that we have in this really difficult field and then learning some techniques to try to harness each other's wisdom so we have the collective wisdom of the organization and you know Japanese saying none of us is as good as all of us and we have so much trouble in organizations when people get threatened or they feel vulnerable accepting influence yeah, yeah. accepting influence so those are things that you know coaching is not just sort of a kumbaya there's a <laughs> lot of techniques that we try to help people learn and the other piece of that is it needs to be just like it took years for you to become a good pediatric cardiac intensivist. And you keep learning every day. And if you think about professional sports teams out there, they have a coach that shows up with them every day. Coaches that show up with them every day and help them continue to get better. I don't understand why we don't do more of this in organizations. Help people learn the resources that they need to start 
behaving differently, to start responding differently, to start imagining themselves in a more full and dynamic way, have you know more ability to understand. You know, we always tell for conversations, there's basically three things we need for a conversation. And the first is, how do you show up? What's happening in you at this moment? If I'm really over outside that window of tolerance, maybe this is not a good time to have a conversation because I'm going to say something that I'm going to wish I hadn't said or somebody's going to wish I hadn't said. <laughs> the second is, how do I engage? And that's a huge thing for people to learn about. Can I engage with genuine curiosity to try to understand somebody else's perspective? Because everybody's behavior and everybody's actions make perfect sense when you understand their motivation. If we could just be curious, we, we started watching Ted Lasso. So there was that wonderful uh, thing where Ted Lasso uh, was playing darts and he, and he quoted Walt Whitman and he talked about be curious, not judgmental. And it's really important. And we do think about how you round when you ask questions. And Jamie's noticed this all the time because she catches me with it. You know, asking questions where I damn well know the answer and you better come up with it. That's not curious. You know, that's that's a Socratic method that doesn't work very well. The curiosity is, huh, I'm curious. Why? Why did you give that additional dose of Lasix? And not in a judging, you know, you were wrong and I'm right. But I, we have different ways of perceiving the world and putting information together. And the teams that can hang in there really can learn these techniques and they can become joyful teams. I've, I was on a team. Some of the people listening to this may have been on that team with me that we called it Camelot. We, we were very blessed. And we also recognize just how fragile that is because it takes a lot of work and a lot of commitment. And people, when we get into organizational work, always say, oh, we have to create a system of safety and trust. Well, safety and trust is a byproduct of doing all the other things that we call the seven practices of highly resonant teams. And a resonant team is different than a dissonant team. A resonant team is one that you just show up to work and it's so much, it's joyful to be there. You know, the dissonant team is the one where every day you get up and put on your armor and pick up your weapon to go to work. And after a while, that just wears you down. Well, and what I remember about that team is they were very inclusive yeah. of partners and spouses. And so we would do th- we actually enjoyed doing things together. Well, it was it was a person that I was talking to once about this and he's a very good person in his field. And he said, I don't really care about teamwork. I just want good outcomes. And, you know, the FAA figured this out a long time ago when they had planes auguring into the ground every few months. And they realized that teamwork was not having the old captain telling everybody, watch how I do this. You don't talk to me unless I talk to you. And I've heard surgeons look at perfusionists and and tell them, I don't want to hear your voice unless I ask you a question. And that immediately shuts down all the potential of collective wisdom in the team. So, research is really clear, and the FAA is probably as good an organization as any I know that showed it. When they began harnessing the collective wisdom and everybody had permission on a high-consequence organization to make it a high-reliability organization, those results get better. And, and it's, you know, none of us are at our best when we feel intimidated or afraid or ashamed. We're always at our best when we're invited to, you know, say something. Everybody is born with that curious, intrepid spirit. It's just the ability to be able to have people in the organization see each other as humans who are fallible, but who 
can have caring relationships with each other and focus on how can they help each other. Oh, this is amazing. I mean, you can tell you're just passionate about it. And the way you speak is so full of love and is so full of service and joy. And you can tell how much this means to you. I feel so honored that we get to sit down and talk with you guys. And I think that, you know, just like you were saying, we spend decades really trying to master and become experts at physiology and anatomy and medical management, surgical management, and yet we don't spend any time really understanding or exploring our unconscious or conscious beliefs and how they impact our emotions and our actions and our results in our life. And I feel like it's such a valuable tool and can really be like the next stage of evolution, right? And in, in all of our teams and within ourselves. I wanted to ask you a little bit more as you were talking about um, Jamie and also Ross, the like the individual needs versus the group needs in coaching. It seems in my naive and humble understanding that a lot of it is surrounding just raising consciousness about your beliefs and how they manifest in your life, which is sort of self-oriented. Uh-huh. So when you're talking about working in a team, if our goal is to sort of reclaim our responsibility and our agency in our life, then how do we bring that in a team dynamic? Is it just like you were saying, if your colleague has an activating or a stressful event, how do you sort of navigate between the, the individual and the team? And a coach in that situation, I would talk to each person separately just with curiosity. And and by the way, it's been my experience that people are not at their best. They don't make the best decisions that if either person is activated enough that they're sort of out of that window of tolerance that Ross talked about. If they're activated that much, the first goal is to get them self-soothed or each other soothed or calmed down in some way because they're not really going to be listening or hearing if they're activated. But I would work with each person individually to explore, to understand, and perhaps try to give them some tools individually around that. But I would also want to put them in the same room together after a while, if I thought that was possible. Now, there have been situations where I didn't think that was in anybody's best interest to do that. I think if that's the case, they're probably not going to be a high-functioning team. Because ultimately, and and the way I work with people, and I actually learned this, gosh, 20 years ago, but I literally move in the room and put myself in each person's place. And I try to imagine what's not being said. And I try to give permission for the vulnerability underneath whatever is going on. Because, you know, some people grew up and the only way they know how to stay safe is to manipulate others. You know, they don't they don't know it's okay to be who I am. So first I got to earn that person's trust (laughs) that I'm a safe person so much so that if I get them, the two people that have had maybe the conflict or that are dysregulating one another in the same place, they both have to trust that I'm not taking a side, (laughs) but that my real client is the relationship between the two of them. And that I, my goal is not to judge or decide, but that, to help both of them develop some tools to both self and then other regulate. What Jamie just said is that what people aren't saying is where the gold is. You know, I'll give you an example. You know, if, you know, right now we have all this external pressure 
of trying to perform for the STS data. We're trying to serve it and trying to avoid having a ding that score, and it puts a lot of pressure on our programs. It puts pressure on the intensivists. It puts pressure on the surgeons. It puts pressure on the institution, the cardiologists, everyone imagining how do we get perfect and what's going to happen if they find out we're not perfect. And so some of this we can do with individuals, but it's the thing that's not being said. Because if I'm having an argument with you, say, if you were, you know, my intensivist, and uh, and I was and I came in and I was not not happy with how a patient is doing, and we get into a a conflict, what I'm really trying to say is I'm scared that this patient may not make it, and for whatever the reasons are, you know, maybe because I really have a commitment with this family and I'm letting them down, or uh, I'm really afraid that I'm, the institution's going to find that maybe I'm not good enough for them. Or that this patient will die and it will be my fault. Whatever it is, if I can begin to say that, now we're having a dialogue at the level of vulnerability. You know, and once we can help people get there, if they're able, uh, there are some people that you can't have those vulnerable conversations. On the other hand, if you can find a collection of people that can work on being able to express what's really happening, then you're going to be able to converse at that level. And you're going to be able to problem solve in an entirely different way. We have all been there. I think most of us listening to this podcast have been in a situation where there is an acutely ill child. They're not following the expected course. And something recently happened that has upset members of the team because of all the things that you are that you've said. You know, they're afraid, basically, but it doesn't come out like that. And you have to work with this person, though to make a decision about this child and you are not in a place you you can tell that this person's activated to use jamie's word but you're not in a place where you feel like you're being heard but how do we in those moments what are some practical tips or advice for how we can try to salvage that situation to get to a clinical decision that needs to be made before they can have a good night's sleep. Well, you know, you're, this, this is getting into the really important work, and it's it's hard because in the moment, you know, you sometimes there's the overriding problem that keeps recurring, and then there's this moment that I got to solve right now. And so it's how do we solve the moment and then ultimately start looking at the problem. And so the moment may require... Um, to be able to say, I, I don't know that we're going to be able to solve this right now. Could we both take some time out and talk about this later? I know it's hard because you may, with your passion for what this patient requires, whatever the decision is, you may see things going off the track that you would like to be on. And you have not a sense of obligation. And you may feel like I can't let this go off the track, but you're having a conversation um, with the amygdala of the other person. Yeah. Their, their, their amygdala has hijacked them, and they're no longer using their prefrontal cortex to be able to reason. And you can't you can't have that conversation. Well, it's a setup, because yeah. there's no way you're going to... Vulnerability's off the table. So, I mean, they're, they're just in the grip. The coaching really might be around, since we easily trigger each other or dysregulate it, how do we move forward with that information? <laughs> and you can't do it in that moment. But then after the fact, it's like, since this is a dynamic with us, 
and the reason I'm saying this is because probably one or both of those two people are not going to feel safe being vulnerable. So then we just have the conversation, how to next time, how do you want to decide who's going to be the decider here? Because we're not available to join each other. Because I don't, I don't think that coaching is, is always effective unless both people yeah. are interested. If one person is so defended. It, it takes and, two to and, have and a relationship and really only one to break it. Then I don't, you know, I think it's sort of like, well, let's just talk about how we're going to decide. It may just be that we're going to set some ground rules here. Yeah. And then over time with practice, people do start to change. It's really just paying attention because all of us are going through this journey of learning. And so even when you have this, it's what can I learn from myself that I can take from this, uh, that I can go forward yeah. with. So that's a lot of stuff. We've written a lot on this. I mentioned the article, the, the first chapter in the textbook, our, our book that's out on internal resources to help people manage demands. It's a learning process. And you slowly engage in relationship with yourself and with others with curiosity and with openness. That's a call, right? It's curiosity openness to be open to whatever you learn acceptance in this time at this present moment and loving kindness to yourself and to others organizations and teams can get better in the organizations in which i've worked as a pediatric heart surgeon people i've worked with that ultimately the hospital leadership could be the ceo could be the uh, uh, whoever that dean it could be whoever is owning the process Ultimately, this has to be important to them. And what we hear sometimes is, well, we just want our group to just be able to get along. <laughs> we just want them to play in the sandbox. And those teams eventually dissolve where they don't do their best work. We've all spent time learning the technical aspects. And so some people have called these the soft skills. They're not soft. <laughs> They're really hard to learn because we, we end up recreating the same old stuff because we're, you know, what is it? Wherever you go, there you are. And it takes a lot of work to be able to start noticing and just experimenting and trying to do things. And you have to have a team of willing participants to do that. One of the things that I think is the most striking that you mentioned is this awareness of what is really going on and learning to not ascribe intent to someone's actions. And I think that is a very eye-opening statement because it's very easy when you're in the moment to feel like it's all about you. This person is attacking me. They think I'm a bad doctor. They think I did something stupid. When the reality is it probably has very little to do with me and everything to do with them and how they manage failure. But I think even just taking that initial step to approach interactions with curiosity can really be transformative. And I think that's that piece that Jamie talked about, that space between the event, the stimulus, and the response. And in that space, you can start to breathe and think, I wonder what else could be true, another story that could be equally as true. And I think medical training in general what is what do they teach all of you? You know, is medical starting as medical students that you know the buck stops with you and you have to be totally account- accountable. And so it's so natural then then if there is a disagreement or 
you know, someone's blaming to, to go to that place of, you know, self, you know, like, what did I do? Is something wrong? Or, you, you know, and so I, I guess I just want to sort of normalize that. And then to me, the follow up is an ouch. That really hurt. And how do I talk to myself with tenderness? And I can't control this other person, but how do I control how I think about it and I talk to myself? And for me, it's always helpful to think of what's the story I'm telling myself? What are the alternative stories that could be equally as true? <laughs> Is there a story that would invite me to have more compassion for myself and kindness? And I think we can have compassion for others and also set boundaries. You know, and I sometimes visualize my hand. I learned this from a teacher. Like my hand is up and nothing you say goes past <laughs> this, you know, sort of force field thing that I have going here. It's like a boomerang, you know, and I'm visualizing this this protective shield around me that allows enough of the good end. But if it's if it's negative, it's just it's bouncing off. So in my world, our our strengths and our weaknesses are the same. Our weaknesses are our strengths overdone. So what I would say, Deanna, is what a strength to be so accountable. And also to recognize that when that that accountability piece, that caring piece, that piece that wants it to be okay gets overdone, it might look more like taking on things that don't belong to me. <laughs> You know, and how do I sort them out and kind of give you back <laughs> the pieces you just threw on me or projected onto me that that I don't really think, you know, I want to own right now. I think that's so helpful. And it keeps coming across like love for others, but also love for self. That's what I keep hearing coming out. Relationship with others and also relationship <laughs> with self is just as important in building that foundation. It's so beautiful. Well, Sadie, you've said it. Perfectly. There's basically three pieces going on all at, in any any of these uh, situations. There's self. What 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 do I need? What am I feeling? What's happening inside me? What do I know? What do I want to contribute? And then there's others. What are they knowing? What are they feeling? What are they needing? And then there's this huge context that we're in: self, others, and context. And the context sometimes overwhelms us, and we have to constantly remind ourselves: all three of these things have needs. They may be competing needs. The context wants me to come in at midnight. I want to go to sleep. <laughs> I'm going to have to make a choice. <laughs> Thank you, Ross and Thanks, Jamie Ungerleiter. We so appreciate having you and listening to all of your wisdom about coaching and team dynamics. And for all of our listeners, thank you for joining us today on this uh, PCICS podcast episode. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information on how to become a member and enjoy updated information on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more.